Trauma Therapist Podcast, Episode 87. Passion, dedication, and inspiration. If you're ready to hear inspiring... Are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever wherever you need it. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code THETRAUMATHERAPIST. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast, and don't forget to use the code the trauma therapist to get 15% off your first month, make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. Interviews with amazing trauma therapists. This is it right here, right now with your host, Guy McPherson. All right, guys, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name's Guy McPherson, and today I'm super excited to introduce my guest, Amber Elizabeth Gray. Amber, are you ready to go? I am ready. All right. Amber is a longtime practitioner of body-centered arts and sciences, a board-licensed mental health professional, and an advocate of human rights. She's an award-winning dance movement therapist and an authorized continuum movement teacher. Amber has worked for almost 20 years with people who have survived human rights abuses, war, natural disaster, as well as with humanitarian response teams. She's currently director of Restorative Resources Training and Consulting and its nonprofit counterpart, Trauma Resources International. She's also a clinical advisor with the Center for Victims of Torture. Amber has pioneered the use of somatic movement and creative arts psychotherapies in cross-cultural contexts, such as complex humanitarian emergencies and natural disasters. All right, Amber, just kind of a background of what's going on for you. Uh, Take a moment, take a short moment, actually, and just share with us where you're calling from, for instance, what it's like there, and then we will dive in. Well, currently I'm in my home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I just arrived uh, yesterday from Beirut, Lebanon, where I was working in... Um, Beirut and working with a working with a program I've been working with for a year that's based in Tripoli, Lebanon, which is up fairly close to the Syrian border. So I'm 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 here in Santa Fe and still processing <laughs> where I've just come from, where I've just landed from. Oh man! All right. Well, thanks so much for again. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Really appreciate it. So you know, <clears throat> excuse me. This. Uh, podcast really is to to focus in on what you're doing, the amazing work work you're doing, and what's inspired you. And and we start with a quote, a mantra, whatever, an excerpt from a book. It doesn't matter. Something share something with our listeners. Are you tired of spending countless hours buried under mountains of progress notes or clinical notes? It's time to focus on what truly matters, which is providing exceptional care to your clients. Introducing Text Expander, your ultimate solution to help you streamline documentation and boost your productivity. I've been using Text Expander for years, and it's one of the tools I use every single day. 
if you're a therapist, if you're a coach, any content or text you use on a regular basis in your progress notes, for example, your name, address, or even longer forms, paragraphs of notes or sections of reports, you can create a shortcut for it. Text Expander automatically populates entire paragraphs of text, saving you valuable time and effort, and it allows you to get back to what truly matters, your clients. Text Expander is offering the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners 20% off when you go to textexpander.com slash trauma. That's textexpander.com slash trauma. Listeners that uh, has inspired you through the work you've been doing. Sure. I have to confess that I had I came up with actually have two. Okay. So I'll I'll say the the first one is something that that I've heard myself say many times, which I realize I don't know when I actually first thought these words, but they're my mantra in this work, and that is that every human being has the right to inhabit his or her body in the way he or she chooses, and that's something that that I think is the spirit of of the work that I do and how I work in the world. Um, the other one is Isadora Duncan, mother of, of modern dance. You were once wild here. Don't let them tame you. I know I should have only picked one, but, but I, I think it's important to get inspiration from others. And that quote, uh, that quote to me speaks about our, our connectivity to everything, um, to everything that's wild in the world. And what I mean by that are, is things that are fresh and novel and innovative and new, um, and I think that's an essential, that's, that's essential for our inhabitation of our own bodies. There's such a relationship between how we inhabit the earth, the space around us and our own bodies. So yeah. they both speak powerfully to me. Yeah. I love both of these quotes. Um, take, take one and kind of hone in on it, put a, put a kind of magnifying lens on it, if you will, and share with us when that became, uh, resonant for you. Sure. I, I'll take, um, I'll take every human being has a right to inhabit his or her own body in the way he or she chooses. And I think possibly the first time that I might have been aware of the embodied experience of that is when I was quite young, I would sneak outside and dance under the stars and, or dance to the moonlight or dance, especially if there was a lot of wind or if I happened to be near a body of water, the ocean. And I was aware, even at a, quite a young age, that that was, was perhaps not considered usual. I mean, I went to dance classes, you know, and things like that. But there was something so powerful to me. I don't think I had the word embodied then, but I remember feeling very connected to everything, but really, really, really experiencing my body. So that feels like a template or a, a baseline in which I entered this work and, and, the, and the world as I, as I, I don't like to say grew up because I'm not sure that I've grown up yet, <laughs> but as I continued working and starting to layer in the, the various educational and professional experiences that have um, led to the work that I'm, that I'm doing now, I've, I've encountered many people who've suffered enormous human rights abuses and, and human rights abuses on the continuum of, of, you know, Domestic violence that occurs commonly here, you know, everywhere in the world, um, people fleeing their homes because of wars, people who've been tortured in a political context. So seeing people who's suffering, who are suffering in their bodies, in their psyches, in their hearts, in their spirits, and whose suffering was created often by very direct 
physical abuse or even if it wasn't actual physical um, abuse to the body, just being displaced from a home or, or not feeling safe in a, in a home space or in the world, that affects how we inhabit our body. So over time, the accumulation of experiences and exposures to people who suffered much, much more than I've ever suffered really reinforced that idea. And I think the words themselves first came to me shortly after I became a dance movement therapist. I was speaking in a panel and I was speaking about my work in Haiti um, in the years 2004, five, where there was a fair amount of violence. And I just had prepared something. But when I started my panel presentation, that's what I said. And I remember that it was like the surge came through me and I was thinking about Haiti and thinking about people I'd worked with there. And I just said that and I thought, oh, wow, that's really true. That is really, really true. So yeah, that's the, that's the history and the, I would say the, the birth of, of the words and the, and the experience behind them. Yeah. I appreciate you. Or the meaning behind them. Appreciate, um, appreciate you elaborating on that. You know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, uh, I'm really curious as to how you got into to this field. I mean, dance and the intersection of dance and trauma. I mean, obviously trauma and the body. Um, and I think this even kind of speaks to my naivete in a, in a, a sense, but how did you get here? I mean, people who are listening to this podcast obviously have different journeys about how they started to work with trauma, but share with our listeners and tell us a story. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a side of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Amber, about what got you into this field? Well, there's probably several stories. I'll start. I'll. I'll. I'll say. There's one that that jumps into my mind immediately. And, and but I'll, what I'll say is that dance, dance has always been my refuge and my sanctuary. And I'm actually somebody who wasn't particularly good at the forms of dance that most of us were doing when I was a kid. Ballet. I lasted about two classes. So it was really. Um, movement, the experience of moving and allowing that movement to be expressive and creative. And then eventually I found Haitian dance and West African dance and found my home in the dance world. But there, the, one, one of the stories that I, that I remember, well, the first thing that popped into my mind is I was actually trekking in Nepal back in the late 80s. And I, this was, this was at a time where Nepal was, was it was opened up, but it still, <clears throat> I don't think it was as busy as it as it has been it was uh, i was trekking in the um annapurna region and so there wasn't a lot of human uh, traffic at that time and i don't remember where i was in nepal i was about 13 or 14 days into a 30-day trek and very remote place very rustic environment and i woke up in the middle of the night to this horrible screaming and it took me a moment to orient and you know was i dreaming was it real and I, I, there was, there was a couple other people. It was one of those dorm rooms. And I, I said to somebody who also woke up, do you hear that? And, and, and she cautioned me not to go out, but I went out because I, I, it was just so blood curdling. And I, I wandered into this square in the middle of town and saw somebody being what I would consider to be tortured. It wasn't political torture. I, 
I've learned, but he, he was tied to a post and he was being whipped. Um, they had knives out. I, I didn't know what they were going to do with the knives. And I just remember seeing this and thinking, this can't be real. This cannot be real. And it was. And perhaps either stupidly or boldly or a little bit of both, I approached because it seemed so wrong to me. And I got screamed at in Nepali, and, but they dispersed. And I found out, then I, then I went back. I thought, I better go back to my room. And then I found out the next morning that um, he'd been accused of something. Later on, we found out it was wrongful. But it was just this, it was, I don't know exactly what that violence was in the context. I didn't know that much about um, the context for justice or punishment or what had happened. But it, but it was brutal, abusive behavior. And that really, you know, that was my one of my eyes wide open moments. And I, I, I remember going home and I had just finished my master's in public health and was going to be doing some international work. But I also had this idea that I wanted to do more individual work. And that, that ignited the spark that led me to get into somatic psychology and dance movement therapy many years later. I mean, almost 10 years later. But that was that 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 lit that pathway. It was like a, a lighthouse it started beaming in that direction. Oh my God. <laughs> what yeah, a, it was what pretty. A, in, yeah, yeah, just a harrowing story. I mean, so you're tr- what, go, being on, you're on this amazing, what sounds like an amazing trek in mm-hmm. Nepal. And in the middle of the night, you hear this just amazing, amazingly awful, blood curdling scream. You go out, you, yeah. you're witnessing this. And where where is the line between, um, and I guess, uh, help help us understand the the the, the connection between the, the dance the body and yeah. working in that field. Well, that that was my my waking up. I think to to the issue of human rights. I was already. Yeah. My parents say that I've been an activist since I was born. My dad calls me up. He, he said that I was born dancing and fighting. <laughs> and so there, I I think that woke up the social justice human rights issues, um, you know, quite strongly in me and and especially because Nepal having a strong Hindu and Buddhist culture, it, it didn't, in some levels, it didn't make sense to me. But at that time I was all, always dancing. I would, you know, wherever I was, I would, whether it was free dancing. And many years later, I was in Rwanda after the genocide and was, had been working in public health and this was a public health project. And I was thinking what I knew I wanted to add another piece. I had already, studied massage therapy and herbal healing in my journey. And, but I knew I wanted to add a piece and I was looking at everything from naturopathic medicine to clinical psychology to dance movement therapy. I'd visited Naropa's campus. And after a very harrowing afternoon of driving through checkpoints and minefields and having to stay on these tiny little narrow tracks so that we didn't get into the, the, that was the only place they had demined at that point. I was doing an assessment and we arrived to this village that appeared to have nobody in it. And then also these, t- these children started popping up out of, out of the space. And what we learned later is that all but seven adults had been massacred. And they, um, as we got out of the car, they were, I didn't speak any of the Kirundi or any of the languages. I had an interpreter with me and they started, you know, gesturing where we could go and where we couldn't go. And my interpreter was explaining that I was there to do an assessment and the children gathered some scraps of metal and things that had survived the violence and they did this brief welcome song and dance with whatever they could find. And I just remember standing there in that moment and it was like like lightning bolts just riveted my feet to the earth and I thought, this is it. And I will admit this was somewhat naive, as inspiring as it was. I thought, 
I'm going, I could see Naropa's campus. I said, I'm going to school to be a dance movement therapist. That oh. is what I'm doing because I'm seeing the power of something that I love reflected in this moment of greeting and welcoming and acknowledging our presence in this, in this really, I mean, really horrible situation. I say it was naive because I've gone on to learn a lot about the, the use of dance therapy and somatic psychotherapy in these contexts. But that was very, that, that's where the dance came in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a, what an amazing image. I mean, uh, you are <laughs> amazing. So before, before we get into, um, you know, maybe asking you about a clinical error, help our listeners, help me understand what does, what do you do specifically as a dance movement therapist? What do you do? Great question. Dance movement therapy, we acknowledge the, the integration of physical, sensation, emotional, transpersonal, cognitive, perceptual, you know, all as um, very important aspects of the human experience that, that are rooted in the body, in our embodied experience. And so what dance therapy is, is it's, I often say it's the marriage between psychology and it really draws a lot from developmental psychology because so much of our development, early development is somatic. It's movement-based. It's nonverbal. Um, it's, it's, we work with movement as a primary language, acknowledging that movement is a language that is truly spoken by all people. Culture is an important um, mediating factor here. There's a tendency sometimes, I think, in the movement and somatic therapies to say, well, if we're working non-verbally, we have more allowance or we might understand more cross-culturally. I've been very humbled in recognizing the power of culture in how people move and inhabit their bodies. So movement is a primary language. And then dance is what I would call the expressive um, aspect of that language or the creative expression of movement. So dance... Is, is is the creative process brought into that primary c- c- language of movement. It's how we communicate. And, you know, looking at ancient cultures, dance and drumming and circle practices and rituals have been powerful means of restoration and acknowledgement and healing and mourning and celebration and marriage. So it's it's taking, I think, some wisdom that's quite old and bringing it into the context of the mental health, the psychological encounter. So we, I spend a fair amount of time really inviting people to find the roots of what they're thinking or what they're feeling in their body at the level of sensation or movement or working with gestures. And some of the work gets quite dance-like depending upon the person. And some of the work does it. It may stay with the breath or it may stay with the awareness of a internal embodied experience. So it, it, it depends. Yeah. And I love the way you, uh, helped us understand the, the kind of difference between movement and dance, uh, dance being what a more refined or celebratory expression of that movement. And of course, you know, when we're speaking about trauma, obviously the body, uh, is at the forefront and, um, share with us, I mean, a lot of people may have what hesitancies about moving, about dancing. What's what's your experience like that been? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, some people, when they find out I'm a dance movement therapist, especially um, some of the people that I've worked with cross-culturally, you know, they go, what? I don't, you know, I don't like to dance or I don't want to dance. And I've had experiences with people I remember I... Um, many years ago in the, this would have been in about 2001, I was leading a a women's therapy group for women from 
Kosovo. We call it Kosovo, but Kosovo is how it's how it's spoken in Albanian. And I had been asked to to lead a dance movement therapy group by one of the case managers at a local refugee resettlement agency. And I was all enthusiastic and telling the women, my intern was there telling the women about what we were going to do. And they just looked at me and they said, well, we only dance when we're happy and we're not happy right now. We've lost everything. Mm. So there are a, a lot of reasons why people don't feel comfortable dancing or may not want to dance. And so, you know, I would say that movement dance experience is on a continuum. And so what I'll say to people and what I'll do with people is a lot of breath work, a lot of somatic work, movement, you know, breath is what controls and liberates movement. So breath, working with breath to me is dance movement therapy. It's, and breath is our dance with life, right? We, we ride it in and we ride it out. So I explained to people that dance movement therapy really speaks to the whole continuum of how how we're aware of our body, move our body, move in it. And that that and a lot of people discover when I just we may just do some regular therapy and then I invite them to recognize some movement that's going on in their body that they may not be conscious of, or I might see some shift in their muscle tone or their breathing, and I ask them about that, and then they start to link that to the fear or the memory or something. And then that's a dance right mm-hmm. there. So I, I, I guide people in very gently. One of the things I've learned is that dance movement therapy for many people, or I should say dance and more exp- the more expressive aspect of this work may not be the place to start. And that's, that's why I say there was some naivety in me when I started. And I've been very humbled by how powerful this work is and how much it must be titrated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to be used. It must be used very judiciously with people who whose bodies feel like a minefield because that's what their people's bodies feel like in many occasions. Yeah. Yeah. And you you I know you, you talked about being humbled and that kind of leads leads us into the this next question about an early clinical error that uh uh you know you learn from and that's maybe informed the subsequent work you've done. It was actually my very first client. I was an intern at the Rocky Mountain Survivors Center, which was a torture treatment program in Denver that's no longer there. And I was adamant that that's where I was going to do my internship. I had come to Naropa, you know, based on my experience in Rwanda and Nepal and other places wanting to do this work. And I remember the day before I was meeting with this client, I was meeting with my supervisor and I basically kind of freaked out. He's like, you've been talking about this since you got to school. So this is what you want to do. And so I I think about the third or fourth session with her. I mean, I was I had to do the assessment and, you know, get to know her. But what we were doing, and I write about this actually in, in one of my first articles, but she had a lot of pain in her in her um chest area and there was a scar there. And in the process of talking about it, I was getting the sense that it might be linked to some tremendous loss. She had left her children behind and um yeah, so there was a lot in this area that had physical pain, a scar, and as we were talking about it, I sort of went right in and I said, is there any movement related to this? And if I were to do it now, I probably would have just observed her breathing, but she started moving her shoulder and I said, show me how your shoulder would like to move or something like that. And she made a big movement and opened her chest up, like she rolled her shoulders back and and there was this moment of exhilaration because she hadn't moved like that in a while and she'd moved through some crunching of the scar and I thought oh great I said let's keep doing that movement we made it bigger 
Well, she didn't come back for a month because she had an asthma attack. She'd flooded her lungs. Mm. There was so much grief in there. And, and her husband came and said to me, that was too much. She, she wanted so badly to do what you wanted her to do. She really likes you. And it was uncomfortable when you asked her to move. And, you know, he just explained it to me. So she's had a history of asthma and she's really, really sick. And so I talked to him for a while and she did come back a month later, but she had to recuperate. And, you know, that was flooding. I mean, she flooded. She flooded. I think she flooded with grief. It triggered her asthma. So that was a, and, and my first client. And we stuck together for three more years. And, and I, I bow to her courage every day because I'm not sure I would have gone back. And we worked through it and we slowed the process down. But that's when I started documenting how slow this needs to go and, and how to actually apply this work in, in some of these contexts of extreme trauma. So I think it's interesting that you know, her husband comes in and says she you know, likes you so much. She wanted to do what you wanted yeah. her to do. Yep. Uh, not in a sense what she needed to do or, you know, or felt she could do. Uh, what a, what a great story. So what, what's the take home here for our clients? I mean, obviously, or for our listeners rather. Well, in terms of that, one of the things that I think we, is important for all of us to recognize is that we hold a lot of power. And I think, you know, I can only speak to who I am, but I think of myself as an open, approachable person, um, I've done a lot of work. I study a lot. When people come to us, and especially people who've suffered human rights abuses, and especially people where there's been an extreme distortion of the power differential, and you know, and that exists in domestic violence, child abuse, political torture, people. I'm a very client-centered person, so there's a couple things. Often, so so my tendency is to want to follow the client, and clients actually can really lose their way. And when there's been enough of a distortion into one's relationship to their body or a complete disconnect, we may need to guide more. We may need to be more directive. But also, I've become very clear that part of that inhabiting how we inhabit our bodies is I have to be keenly aware of how much power I hold as somebody who's in the therapist seat and that part of the work is restoring a little more equanimity in our relationship and um, leveling the power differential as much as I can. So I, Naropa has a strong Buddhist contemplative background or perspective. I mean, that's, that's what they're known for. And that's been really helpful to me is to recognize that, that when I'm sitting with a person, I actually really have to get that I don't know. I never know exactly what something means for them, what, you know, where they come from, how they understand what we're doing there. They, they have a very different idea of what it is to sit with somebody, to talk to somebody, to share personal stories, to share horrible histories. So it's really... I think humility, but recognizing that, that we have to, it's important to find a way with, with these, with trauma to, to get out of the, I'm going to say get out of the expert seat or get out of the, I know, I know seat and recognize how big this is and how much we might not know. Yeah. I mean, I love the way you, you articulated this, the power differential uh, and the kind of distance or uh, what disconnect between a, a, uh, an individual and their body. And then in relation to yourself, yourself, you being the clinician, I love that, uh, the way you articulated that, that power differential topic. I mean, I, th- I think that's really, really powerful. 
Um, all right, Amber, we get to my favorite question here, which is why, what is your why? Why are you doing this? What's, what's driving you day to day? I mean, you've been all over, you know, you started talking about trekking in Nepal and, uh, being profoundly moved by the different experiences that you've had all over the world. What's keeping you going day to day with this work? I... I love this world. There's so many things I love about this world, even with all the difficulties and the challenges. And there are times I can just, you know, break down and cry at at the levels of cruelty and the horrible things that are going on. And I love this world. And even though I have times of being extraordinarily frustrated with humanity and some of the decisions we've made, whether it's certain individuals or collectively, there's such a, there's such a, a beauty in, in what, in whatever's created this, this planet and this, you know, the people and the movement and the countries and the cultures and the natural world. So I get to go out in the world and in my encountering with some very difficult situations and people who've suffered tremendously, I also encounter huge inspiration and I'm not, I'm not being, you know, Pollyanna or, or diminishing the, the weight of the suffering, but people really do, people really do have extraordinary resiliency, you know, to use a term that's getting quite popular, extraordinary. People have strong spirits. And I, I, what I see is I see the potential in us to do it, you know, one better, excuse me, one better than was done before. I think that's a really important piece is we all come into the world and we've all got maybe some navigation skills and there's a lot of unknown uncharted waters. And, and I do think most people have basic inherent goodness and, and intend to, to do as, as well as they can. And so I see that in people and I see this really, this willingness and desire to do it even better. And that's what inspires me. That's what keeps me going. I've met some of the most extraordinary people. I mean, I was just with my students in Lebanon and just, just inspiring all the time, you know, the courage um, to do the work that they're doing with Syrian refugees who are, you know, 1.5 million in that tiny country. So it's, yeah, it's, and it's, it's reciprocity. It's, it's, you know, the, the dialogue, the interaction with people from all over, I've, I've learned so much. Yeah. Just, it just sounds like you're really being, uh, kind of fed by mm-hmm. the experience and it just seems really kind of cyclical in a sense, you know? Um, Absolutely. what do you have to say for individuals who are just getting into this field? I mean, you know, li- people listening to this podcast, um, come with varying levels of experience. Some are uh, more experienced clinicians who have been working with trauma. Some are clinicians who have experience who maybe don't believe that they've worked with individuals who've experienced trauma, and some are just starting out. What what do you say to to, to those of us who are listening? Um, there's two things that pop into my, my mind. One is the importance of self-care. And I think that's something that we talk about a lot and it's often included, you know, in conferences or it's, it's usually the last session. <laughs> um, we go to separate workshops about it. But I think coming in and recognizing that the first thing to do is to map who you are in the moment, what you love. This is what I always say. This is what I teach in my, my training series. Know what you love, know what you fear. And make a map of where you are and whether it's a body map or a, um, you know, a map of a, a 
sort of genogram type, type of map, but what matters to you? What's important? What are your daily life look like? What do you love to do? Who's, who's important to you? And track that map. Keep paying attention to it because this work does change us. And, you know, we know from a lot of the, you know, neuroscientific research and mirror neurons and the things coming out about empathy and compassion, we know that when we're confronted with things, it's going to change us. And many of those changes become powerful tools for us to become change agents and, you know, might even contribute to some um, more positive change in the world. But there are changes that will be very difficult, uncomfortable, painful. One of my favorite teachers, Angwin St. Just, used to say, you're going to be you know, bathing in terrible knowledge. You're going to be listening. You're going to learn things about the world that you may have times you don't want, you wish you didn't have to know. And so I think the self-care and really being prepared. And, and I, I had a little bit of matcha in me when I started this work. So I, I think it's really important to know that. And the other piece is diversity. Everything that we do and know matters. So I come from a very varied background, international relations, massage therapy, public health. Some people come straight up through psychology. Some come, through, you know, dance therapists come through dance. Everything that we bring with us matters because we're, we're, we're touching into humanity and the human relationship. There's so many facets that are important. So I've realized that it's not my clinical knowledge. My theory base is very important. What's as important is who I am and where I've been and what I know to, to, to make those human connections. It's like species diversity. The more diverse we are, the healthier we are. So I think that's another really important piece. Okay. So the first thing to do is to know what you love, know what you fear, make, make a, a, a map in a sense of what matters to you and kind of track uh, how that changes. Just be aware of how that changes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And also diversity. I love, I love these, you know, everything that we do matters. Yes. The clinical, uh, uh, knowledge is important, but you're saying what we bring from ourselves, from our experience is also equally important as to, and yes. to appreciate that. That to me was something that I, when I first started out, I didn't appreciate, you know, I, when I first got to graduate school, I was like, um, I want to know what book I need to read. I want to know what workshop I need to attend to. And I didn't really honor what I had known and, and learned yes. and experienced. And that that's a crucial piece. I, I really appreciate you bringing that out. Um, all right, Amber, as we kind of wind down here, what two books would you recommend to our listeners? And again, you know, these can be trauma related or, or not, whatever. Well, the two books that I go to a lot are Stephen Porges, The Polyvagal Theory, that the first time I heard Dr. Porges speak, I think it was 99 or 2000, it was a big wow. And that book is really important to me, as is his work, you know, his ongoing theories. And I'm, um, we've done some collaborations, we've done some teaching together. I think that's that just what, what he's offered in terms of, I like to th- describe the nervous system as, as a guiding star. It might be the North star for some people. It might be the Southern cross for others. Like I don't even want to assume what, what the guiding star is, but it's so important. And the idea of safety and, and love and relationship and reciprocity. And the other one is Emily Conrad's book, Life on Land. She's, she created Continuum Movement. It was, it was a work that she birthed throughout her life right up until her death. And it's, it's not trauma specific at all, 
this work arose from her because of her own very challenged childhood and some very significant challenges throughout her life. And being a continuum movement teacher, um, she and I both have a strong connection to Haiti. So a lot of the work arises out of that. But that book is a beautiful, it's a beautiful journey. And it constantly reminds me of why we might be here. So those are my two. Okay. So the polyvagal theory by uh, Stephen Porges and uh, Life on Land by Emily Conrad. What is continuum movement? Continuum movement is a practice of embodying and moving from our our fluid, our fluid body, our fluid nature. So one of the things Emily proposed was that the the human body being 70 to 80% water, she didn't propose that, that's known. The planet is equally 70, about 70% water, that there must be a reason for this. And in our modernization modernization of our species, we've tended to privilege muscular, skeletal, neurological, more linear, more organized, more forms of movement that actually can pattern us quite heavily and make us more dense or constricted. And then we have this whole potential to actually move and be very fluid. So we work with sound. I mean, it's kind of, if you think of ultrasound, we work a lot with sounds, sound frequency, sounds traveling in waves. And that wakes up our body's birthright to move like waves. I mean, we do have a lot of ability to be quite fluid in our movement, and that that impacts how we move through life as well. So that's a it's it's hard to describe it briefly, but it's very organic, fluid movement. It's it's discovering. I always say it's the it's the deep stirring beneath um, the, the the of of who we are, you know, authentic movement. You work from the impulses that precede movement. Continuum. You work from the deeper stirrings that precede all, you know, how we move in the world. So awesome. Okay, thank you for yeah. that clarification. Um, what's the best way for our listeners to to reach you to get in contact with you? I have I have a website. It's it's www.restorativeresources.net. Um, my email is listed there. It's restorativeresources at gmail.com. I'm, yeah, my website, I track classes that I'm teaching and things that I've written and where I'm going to be. So I think that's probably the best way. Awesome. Okay. And that'll be up on the, the show notes page at westcoasttraumaproject.com. Hit on the podcast tab and Amber's uh, episode will be right there along with these links. Um, Amber, you are on fire you really are. I mean, from the get-go, I could just feel uh, the passion. And I, I learned a hell of a lot by talking to you today. And I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time time to uh, to do this. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. All right. So we will be in touch uh, soon. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. 
And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all.